0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello and welcome to the New Books Network. This is the Middle East Studies podcast on the New Books Network, and I'm your host, Ruben Silverman. With me today is Professor Kevin Jones. Professor Jones is an assistant professor at the University of Georgia, and his new book, The Dangers of Poetry: Culture, Politics, Revolution and Revolution in Iraq, was published in 2020 by Stanford University Press. So I'm glad that Professor Jones can join us today. Uh, welcome to the show.
0: Thank you so much, Ruben. Yeah, and uh, I
1: mean, first off, can I ask you a little bit about yourself, your background? What drew you to this uh, field of Middle Eastern studies, to poetry, and uh, specifically to pre
0: baathist Iraq? Yeah, thank you for the question, Ruben. Um, you know, I, uh, in terms of what drew me to the Middle East, I, I'm always a little bit sheepish when I answer the question, because I feel like the, the mm-hmm. answer is a little bit trite. But uh, I, I was a freshman as an undergrad uh, when 9-11 happened. Um, and so the Middle East was in the news. Uh, I didn't know anything about the Middle East. Um, I decided to take some courses and, and really liked um, uh, what I was learning about and gradually got drawn more into um, learning about the region, studying Arabic. Um, a few years later, of course, the, um, the Iraq War broke out, um, and I was involved at the time in um, some of the, the activism against the war, um, but that's definitely what what um, sparked my interest in, in learning more about Iraq. But it was just sort of a, a snowball process of, um, you know, realizing that, that I didn't know very much about a particular area of the world and that I wanted to learn more, uh, taking classes and, and gradually um, uh, sort of developing my interest in that direction.
1: Cool. And why did you choose poetry then particularly to look at?
0: Yeah. So that was a, it was a long roundabout decision. When I, when I started my PhD, I, I really had no idea I was going to work on poetry. Um, I, I didn't have any kind of um, major interest in poetry beforehand. I mean, I always liked poetry, but n- nothing special as far as I was concerned. I didn't have like a a real fascination with poetry. I, I began, you know, I, so I started out, I knew I wanted to write about a rock um, and I, um, I was particularly interested in the British Mandate period, uh, partly because I thought it would help hmm. me better understand uh, relations between uh, Iraq and the West, and uh, understand something more about the the context um, of the the American occupation there. Um, so I was looking for for a way in. I began a project that was really um, was really designed. The dissertation initially was designed as a as a look at anti colonial politics in Iraq. Um, and ended up being sort of or at the beginning it was conceived as sort of partly about um, uh, Iraqi politics partly about uh, cultural forms of anti-colonialism and then partly social history involving agrarian politics uh, and the like uh, and then eventually I just concluded that the the poetry sections were richer a bit more innovative it was more exciting to me and so gradually over time uh, the sort of the politics thread dropped out a little bit. It was always important to, to frame the argument, but um, I, I felt like I had a lot more to say uh, about the role that poetry was playing in particular forms of social and political activism. Um, and so eventually the, the project was just sort of reformulated um, as, a, as a story about uh, the role of poetry in these particular forms of, of anti colonial politics.
1: Huh. Well, yeah, that makes sense, and it does work very nicely. Uh, and so in the book, you focus on particularly neoclassical poetry and the poets who grew up um, performing, writing neoclassical poetry around Najaf. Um, Can you give us a sense of the literary scene in uh, when your book starts, the early, the last years of the Ottoman Empire? Um, What does it help us understand about the regional importance in in Iraq and uh, how that connects with this type of poetry? Yeah, that might be a good place for us to start, I think.
0: Yeah, thanks. That's a great question. So the the first chapter really kind of lays out what what the poetry scenes were like in the late Ottoman period. Uh, And my argument is that um, before, let's say, the the, the first decade of the 20th century, um, you're really talking about um, at least three different distinct poetry scenes. There's one in the south centered around Najaf, but they would incorporate some of the surrounding towns like Hilla, um, there's the scene in Baghdad, uh, and then there's the scene in, in the north in Mosul. Um, and, and of course, there would be some interaction and some connection, but there were, um, you know, because poetry was not, you, you don't have a big publication industry. You're not publishing Dewan's collections of poetry at the time. Um, there, there were very few newspapers to sort of um, disseminate poetry. It, it was more about individual oral scenes and uh, the, the individual teachers you learn from the kinds of physical audiences that might be present in a room uh, when someone is reciting poetry. Um, so it was very much lo- three, three distinct local scenes. Um, that starts to change in the last decade of the 20th century, um, particularly as you see some movement of Shi'i poets in particular, uh, between Najaf and Baghdad uh, that really starts to bridge connections between those scenes. So you start to see the emergence of um, uh, shared affinities between those scenes. Um, and, and then I think you see further developments with the rise of the premier the uh, periodicals, um, most of which were based e- either in Cairo uh, or in Beirut. Um, so we're talking about Al-Halal, Al-Muqtataf, uh, Al-Muqtabas, uh, and a number of other um, hmm. literary periodicals that published a lot of poetry. Uh, and what started happening is that there's two poets in particular, uh, Maru Farah Sefi and Jamil, uh, Jamil Sidki Azahawi, um, who began sending their poems off to these uh, premier po- um, these premier literary journals, literary and political cultural journals that are being published in Cairo, um and they started to be published in those journals uh, which for the first time was giving a rocky poets representation in this transnational press outside of Iraqi borders. Now, young Iraqis, uh, especially poetry aficionados, uh, were eagerly reading those journals that, that showed up into Iraq and began circulating in Baghdad and Najaf. Uh, and they were really thrilled and excited to find that there's Iraqi voices in those scenes. And it's really striking to go back and look at the journals, because every time these these um, Iraqi poets uh, appear, especially the Ruzafi and Zahawi, uh, they're always framed as these sort of very distinctive Iraqi voices, right? That, the, um, editors always make a point to play up the fact that they are Iraqis and that there's something unique about their poetry style because of their Iraqi origins. This is different than, than what we see in Egypt. It's got more of that uh, Bedouin twang. uh, They would say, you (laughs) know, Recepians, how we have no sort of Bedouin uh, background themselves. Um, But it's uh, those are the sort of descriptions used to describe their unique style of poetry. Um, And in a lot of ways, like the, the whole idea of an Iraqi poetry scene was defined by editors and readers outside of Iraq who, who read these poems and said, this is nothing, li- this is nothing like what we have uh, in, in Syria or Lebanon or Egypt. Um, it, it must be this distinct uh, Iraqi style. And then eventually what happens is you get a, a sort of reflexive competition uh, from some of the young Najafi po- poets because both Rusefi and Tahawi were based largely in Baghdad uh, and the young Najafi mm-hmm. poets read this. They saw these, these guys being defined as the premier Iraqi poets and they said, hold on, Uh, we have our own poetry tradition that we're quite proud of. Uh, And so there was this rush in uh, the years after the Ottoman constitutional revolution in 1909, 1910, 1911, uh, to try and put together these poetry, the wands or collections of verses from uh, the teachers of this younger generation. So so in this period, right after the constitutional revolution, we're talking about young men uh, in their late teens or early 20s who are trying to Published the work of the men who taught them. There's two in particular, uh, Habubi and Tabatabae, um, who are sort of held up, lionized, and lauded as the sort of real architects of the uh, Iraqi poetry, Nata. Uh, but it's very much a, a competition, this desire to say that, like, um, you know, the the, nata, the the Arab Renaissance, is not something that. Uh, begins in Cairo or Beirut and then gradually spreads to Baghdad, which is a little bit behind Cairo. And then from there, it percolates down into the more provincial towns like Najaf. No, among these young Najafi poets, there's this desire to say, uh, actually, the true roots of this literary renaissance, where you see the real sort of innovation and, and uh, you know, um, uh, emergence of neoclassical poetry, we trace that to Najaf itself, um, in the uh, in the nineteenth century, we're proud of that uh, tradition, and we want to publicize it uh, to, to broader audiences.
1: You know, and maybe it's worth me- mentioning what is what is neo about neoclassical poetry at this time? What are they contributing? What is it? What is the change that they're involved in at this point?
0: Yeah, so the um, you know neoclassical is the the term we give it. It's not it's not used in um, in Arabic, but the, but I think um, hmm. generally speaking, it's seen as. Um, an attempt to reassert uh, classical standards and style. So the whole concept in neoclassical tradition is it's the idea of reviving the classical tradition. There was a general consensus among most readers of poetry that um, there was a long period of uh, literary and poetic decay and decadence um, uh, that, that spanned the majority of the Ottoman period. Um, so everyone basically agreed that the, the poetry of the 1600s, era, era poetry in the 1600s and 1700s, early 1800s was terrible. Um, some, the, some modern historians and critics have, have uh, I think, rightly uh, questioned that assumption, but that was an assumption that was basically shared uh, by all these young poets in the 20th century, that something had gone wrong hmm. and neoclassical rep- uh, poetry represented the revival of that glorious classical tradition. So it's a deliberate um, attempt to recreate and reinvigorate the aesthetics of classical Arabic poetry. Now, what's new about it is uh, the content, right? It's basically taking classical aesthetics and style and using it to express quintessentially modern themes, uh, engagements with modern politics, anti-colonial themes, uh, appeals for social and cultural reform. Um, And so... Um yeah, I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's sort of desire to um, make this appeal for, mo- for modernity that's cloaked in the language and rhetoric of uh, classical aesthetics.
1: Hmm. Well, and as you say, so these, po- I mean, these, po- these poets you're looking at at the beginning, they're enter- entering the scene right about when World War I starts. And so you point to the period of World War I until the Iraqi revolt in 1920 as marking a real shift, right? From traditional sort of patronage-based modes of poetry to one that's tied into what you just mentioned, radical ideas, mass politics. And you you call this rebel poetry, which I I like the term. And I'm hoping you could uh, elaborate a bit on the concept and the the context in which it's happening.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, to me, rebel poetry is, is fundamentally connected to the colonial era uh, and to anti-colonial politics. Um, you know, and I think maybe maybe a, one way of positioning this is that um, we have to think about the context in which poetry was written and recited uh, before the colonial era. Um, it, it could be published in newspapers. It could be recited at gatherings. It could uh, be used to, to praise a particular ruler, um, but, but it often had a political message. Um, and, and I, I, you know, there's, there's some minor examples here and there, but um, in my view, before World War I, there was nothing particularly dangerous about poetry. It's not usually used as a vehicle to directly challenge power structures. And that's partly due to the reality of, of patronage, that, that uh, poets were often seeking the patronage of a particular ruler, uh, some financial support, um, a position in government, etc. cetera. Well, that changes in the colonial era. Um, because, of course, the, the, there's, there's now um, a, a dramatic gap between what your audience, the Iraqi nation wants, and what the men in power, the colonial state, uh, mm-hmm. want. Uh, and so one thing you see, one thing that I, I found really interesting was um, looking at the... Uh, Iraqi newspapers that appear from 1917 onwards um, under colonial patronage. There's, there's a couple of newspapers that pop up uh, that, that publish a ton of poetry. Uh, some of it's written by good poets writing under pseudonyms. Some of it's um, what I think of as very bad poetry. I, I try not to comment too much on the aesthetics of the poetry, but some of it's really quite bad. Um, but it's it's being solicited uh, to um, offer some sort of cultural legitimacy for the British occupation um, and, uh, but, but one thing that's striking is that none of the poets who are publishing these poems in these, these newspapers that are popping up are willing to use their own names. They're only publishing under pseudonyms um, because the, the act of, of praising the colonial state or the colonial occupation in verse uh, would be quite detrimental to the reputations. Uh, And then later on, especially when we we hit 1920, when there's a major national uprising, um, that is what I see as the the real heyday of this phenomenon of rebel poetry. Uh, You get this whole series of scenes in uh, mosques around Baghdad, and then later across the country, uh, there's a deliberate attempt to have... um, Uh, to to bring Sunnis and Shia together in one another's mosques and to have uh, sermons recited, to perform religious ceremonies that are supposed to bridge sectarian divisions, and, of course, to have poets come uh, and recite verses that will appeal to uh, the people to stand together, uh, to link arms, to resist the colonial power. Um, And uh, I always found it really um, uh, striking looking at these at the the records in the British archives uh, about these um, uh, poetry performances in the mosques in 1920, uh, because the, the, the reports are always filtered through. Uh, the language of um, uh, Iraqi informants who were there and now, are now reporting back. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so they talk about the sermons and they'll say the preacher gave this message that's sort of inflammatory towards Britain, uh, but it's always a sort of very rough generalization. And then they get to the poetry and they start quoting lines that the poets Hmm. recited inside the mosque. And, and it's, I mean, it's really striking. It tells you something about uh, the utility of poetry and that the informant remembers the verses because they're striking, they rhyme, you can remember them. Uh, and so you can report back verbatim on what happened. Uh, there, there's one report that I always uh, remember because the informant himself, the informant told his British supervisor, uh, I was so moved by this, this, by this poem that I was almost ready to take up arms yeah. uh, against Britain. Uh, and uh, in the archives, I think Gertrude Bell had um, had underlined it and, and written a, a couple of ex- exclamation points <laughs> in the margins, right, to, to to note how how striking this dynamic was. Um, but so yeah, the the, the phenomenon of, of rebel poetry, a lot of it is about um, sort of st- putting your name out there in public, publicly asserting uh, your opposition to colonialism, letting the colonial state know where you come, and letting this sort of oppositional dissident public attitude define your poetry. And I think that kind of uh, messaging, that kind of public symbolism uh, really continued to resonate across the Iraqi poetry scene uh, for the next uh, the next few decades.
1: And I, I'm just curious about this period of the, the revolt, the uh, initial occupation, Gertrude Bell circling things and writing exclamation points, but do the British appreciate the importance of poetry? I mean, their informants certainly seem to. But are the British taking it into account, really?
0: To some extent, they were. To some extent, um, they were limited by linguistic difficulties. Um, you know, Gertrude Bell was always celebrated as the uh, the best of the British Arabists at the time. I mean, you know, historically, she's known as, as having much better Arabic than uh, T. Lawrence, Lawrence of Arabia, for example. Uh, but I found a, a few mm-hmm. different cases in, in her own letters where she's talking about Poetry performances, and she says quite bluntly, "I didn't understand a word of what was said, but it was all very beautiful. It was a touching scene." Right, oh. so she doesn't understand poetry. Uh, she had a, an interpreter uh, who I, I believe was Sudanese, but but I, I might be uh, misremembering that. And in any case, he would read the poetry for her and translate it. And, and again, in a couple of the letters, I found some passages where she she basically indicated uh, that he didn't like poetry and thought it was very. Uh, mostly worthless, and so didn't bother uh, to tell, to, to, to actually translate a lot of what was going on. Um, and, and so. Uh, but I oh. think the dynamics of a lot of the, the British surveillance efforts, I mean, British officials were definitely reading the newspapers that came out every day and publishing reports about who's saying what, how mm-hmm. inflammatory are things. Um, but, but poets figured out pretty quickly that it was easy to skirt or to escape the eyes of the censor. Um, because the sensors, you know as as non-native uh, Arabic speakers, they were generally scanning the headlines and looking for, you know if you if 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 you think about um you know, uh, a, a native English speaker who's got a few years of Arabic under his or her belt, and, and they're reading a newspaper, they're generally looking for key words, right? If you're worried about uh, anti-colonial sentiment, you might be scanning, uh, scanning headlines and, and the first few sentences or verses of a poem for something about Britain or England. Uh, so as long as you can avoid those kind of key words that pop out to the censor, uh, the, the, the poetry was often glossed over. Uh, and what I noticed was that there there, mm-hmm. there was often also a real sort of distinction. This is a, a bit later in the mandate period um, when there's uh, mm-hmm. you know the, the Iraqi officials and the various ministries take on a little bit of a, a greater role um, in government. Um, but there was always a striking sort of division of interests between. British officials and Iraqi officials in what they're looking for in the press and what I mean by that is that British officials were always hyper focused on op-eds on, on editorial lines right for, for them that's the purpose of a newspaper the, the sort of meat and bones of a daily newspaper is the editorial line that the newspaper is promoting that's what's important what are they saying about the war what are they saying about Britain. Uh, you know, when we get to World War II, they want to know like where where do they think that uh, Iraq's politics should be with respect to allied access, et cetera. Um so that that was very much their focus. The Iraqi officials, on the other hand, were were much less concerned with the editorial lines uh, and much more concerned with poetry. Uh, and my thesis is that the Iraqi officials had a much better understanding of the way that newspapers were read. Uh, in Iraq, in the role of poetry, because often these newspapers would be—you know—the the literacy rates were fairly low uh, at the time, and newspapers were often read aloud in cafes to to large audiences, public audiences, um, and often the poetry was the real selling point. Right, that's what people wanted to hear. What's what's the poem that's in the newspaper today? Um, and so that's the the part of the newspaper that could be really damaging or threatening. Right, if a poet's attacking. A particular government official or a particular government policy, that's going to resonate among the public to a much greater extent uh, than an editorial would. Uh, and so often it's, um, you know, Iraqi officials pushing for poets to be punished because of what they're, pu- they're publishing in newspapers, uh, whereas the British officials are much more concerned with the editorials themselves.
1: That's, I mean, that's interesting. I mean, and it brings me to the next question I was thinking of asking, which is that during the British mandate, when you have... You know, Faisal in, in place as king, but the British still present as well. How did poets position themselves in relationship to this Hashemite monarchy, which is, you know, the front man in the sense, in some senses at least, for the British Empire? How did poets relate to it?
0: Yeah, that's a good question. The um, You know, the, the metaphor I use in the, in the chapter that deals with it is the, the metaphor of the double-edged sword, uh, which comes from a, a British intelligence report about... Um, Uh, the performance of uh, one particular poet uh, at a major event where where Faisal was present and Faisal was being praised. And that the argument is that the praise of this poet was a double-edged sword. Now, what does that mean? Uh, It means that the poet was praising Faisal, not so much for things that he had done and things that he had accomplished, but for things that the poet hoped and expected him to accomplish in the future which meant the realization of full independence, the final liberation of Iraq from British colonial rule. And here the praise is somewhat, it, it's not, you know, it's a it's sort of dangerous game and that the praise is not really praise. It's partly a threat, right? If, if you're praising Faisal for, you know, the, the liberation of Iraq is coming, that's your way of saying in a threatening tone, we expect you to fulfill Uh, the the sort of lingering desire of this nation for full liberation, and you're doing it in public, which puts him on the spot. I mean, in a lot of these performances, when I read the stories about them, the the stories in uh, the the police archives, the the Iraqi newspapers, the the lines of the poetry themselves, uh, it's not hard to imagine the faces of of King Faisal and other Iraqi politicians who were there just turning red or turning white, being drained of color, (laughs) as they realize what's going on, but that they can't do anything except stand there. And listen and endure and sort of smile politely and then uh, you know sort of deal with uh, the, the the poet at the end. But yeah, so a, a lot of that is happening. I mean, it, sometimes it's um, it, sometimes it's less of a threat than others. There's no question that a lot of poets um, really did. It, they want to make a living, right? They wanted a post in government. They wanted to be a, a position in the um, Ministry of Education as a school teacher. Uh, some of the mm. poets who later became uh, very prominent uh, anti-colo- anti-colonial and uh, sort of political dissidents uh, in the country began seeking uh, employment in the royal palace. So, you know, it's a hit and miss. And, and some sometimes poets would sort of um, alternate between a stance of political dissent and then a sort of somewhat slavish uh, position of... Um, Uh, expressing conventional praise if they got the rewards that they were seeking. And then when they're not happy with the reward, uh, they they go back into a position of opposition. Uh, So in part, it's a sort of game that's based on uh, what the rulers, what the politicians are willing to offer uh, in exchange for praise or, or to sort of free themselves from this dangerous criticism that could jeopardize the rep- their reputation. Uh, in part, it's a play for popular legitimacy, uh, popularity, because these stories of, of the poet embarrassing the king circulate. People love to hear that.
1: <laughs> hmm. Well, so a- after 1932, once uh, the British are, at least in a hmm. formal uh, legal sense, gone, even though they've created, helped create this constitution that allows them to stick around in many ways. Um, From 32 to 58, you have this period of the Iraqi monarchy. And during this period, the politics gets very complicated because you have different nationalist strains, you have pan-Arab nationalism, you have more of an Iraq-focused leftism. And even these different categories are not fixed, right? So the the politics and the history become very complicated during this period and how the poets navigate this complexity also becomes very complicated. But I I liked how you you talked about it. And I thought that maybe two of the poets that you point to could be good guides for this. You talk about Muhammad Salih Bahar Aloom and uh, Muhammad Mahdi al-Jawahiri. And these two poets, you sort of play them off against each other at times. Maybe we can talk a bit about each of them. And how they relate to this, this, the 1930s, 40s, 50s, and some of the complexities of it.
0: Yeah, thanks, thanks. That's a great question. Um, you know, so I would say with, with uh, Bahar Alum and, and Jawahari, and I agree, I do see them, uh, you know, if I had to identify sort of real protagonists of the book, it would be those two poets. Um, and I think maybe, maybe I, I see them, they, they play off one another in, in some ways, especially in terms of their style, uh, Barul Loom had a very sort of simple, direct style. He was, he's considered the people's poet. Um, I, I loved him when I was first starting this project because when, I, when I'm first getting into mm-hmm. translating poetry, he was very easy to translate, uh, very direct language, simple, uh, short poems uh, that got right to the point. Whereas Jawahari, a beautiful poet, um, regarded by many as, as the greatest Arab uh, neoclassical poet uh, of the 20th century, um, but but very difficult um, from a linguistic standpoint for his, his style, uh, very, very much more formal, less direct um, than Bara Alum. But politically, they were quite similar. They saw each other as comrades. Um, they're, they were friends. Uh, they're, they're close to the same age. They're both from Najaf. Uh, they both come from prominent clerical families. Uh, they both end up moving to Baghdad and gradually becoming more involved in, in left wing and uh, communist uh, politics. Neither one ends up uh, actually formally joining the Communist Party, but they're both um, two of the more prominent members of the Peace Partisans Movement, which is a, um, a movement in the 1950s and onwards that's largely seen as a communist front organization, very closely aligned with the, the Communist Party in general. Uh, so how does that factor into this um, this divide between... Arab nationalists and uh, Iraqist or, or left wing. Um, Iraq is more focused on Iraqi nationalism. Um, you're right that this is like a, a sort of um, it, it's often framed as this bipolar conflict. Right. Um, you're either in the nationalist camp or you're in the Botani, the Iraqi nationalist camp. Right. Pan-Arab nationalism or Iraqi mm-hmm. nationalism, one or the other. Um, And I think in some ways it's justifiable that that, um, we have that bipolar distinction because certainly by uh, 1959, that was essentially the stakes of the debate, right? It was a very much a a heated political scene after the revolution. And you either belong to the Qalmi, the pan-Arab nationalist camp, or the Watani, the the Iraqi nationalist camp, which was associated with the Communist Party. Um, It was an us versus them situation and you had no choice. um, But to affiliate yourself with one faction or the other... Um, and and there's other times in which you had to make similar decisions. There's a, a the first big military coup in the country in 36, uh, 1936 had a, had a similar dynamic when everyone chose sides. You were either for the coup because you thought it would lead to a socialist revolution. Uh, that tended to be the Iraqi nationalist camp position. Or you oppose the coup. This was the position of the pan arabist uh, camp because it, it jeopardized Iraq's relationship with uh, or Iraq's support for the Palestinian movement, as they saw it. Right. So, uh, you mm-hmm. know, I don't want to criticize the idea of this bipolar struggle, but I do think that, that um, sort of reading this entire period through the lens of the Qalmi versus Watani divide uh, misses a lot of the complexity of the period. And I think the complexity you can see in two different ways. Uh, On the one hand, these these two camps are not entirely defined by the issues that give them their name. Right. In other words, the Khomeini camp is not entirely motivated uh, by pan Arab concerns that uh, over time, in particular, the Khomeini camp uh, adopts a lot of uh, socialist platforms Um, so that in a lot of ways they're coming much closer to the leftists, uh, to the Iraqi Communist Mm -hmm. Party than is commonly understood. And on the, the reverse side, the Watani camp and the Communist Party uh, were much less hostile towards pan-Arab nationalism than people assume sometimes. Um, really, it's it's only in uh, 1959 or so that that opposition really comes out. For, for most of this period, they're, they're very much concerned about uh, pan-Arab issues in uh, Palestine and Syria and Algeria, uh, in Egypt and elsewhere. They're enthusiastic about the same causes. Uh, and so the related point of complexity is that, even though you have this bipolar struggle in 1936 and in 1959, in the intervening uh, two or two and a half decades, what you see is the two the two camps really converging with one another and adopting some of the positions of uh, their, their opponents or the people who were their opponents and will be their opponents in the future. Uh, really, it's, um, mm-hmm. you know, in, in the political scene, this is the sort of days of the national front politics where the socialists and the Arab nationalists and the communists are trying to reach a sort of accommodation because they all stand against colonial influence and the uh, sort of neo-colonial monarchy um, that that everyone opposes and is obstructing any sort of real reforms in the country. Um, But in my view, that national front politics is not a sort of superficial function of high politics. You can really see it playing out uh, across the cultural spectrum where uh, everyone shares a commitment that like, yeah, the, the, politics of this country need to be radically reformed. We need to stand with Nasser. We need to uh, stand up for the Palestinians. We need to break our alliance with Britain and with the United States. And in social terms, everyone from both sides agrees that radical reforms are needed, that, that there needs to be uh, actions taken against uh, feudalism and, and feudalist-like practices in the countryside. Um, that, that you know, everyone is critical of, of capitalism, uh, especially um, as it's expressed in with with foreign uh, American and European companies. So, yeah, you see you see both sides really coming together. Um, and and I, I see a lot of that. Um, I, I think Barlow Loom is maybe a prototypical example of that, because on the one hand, he's very much. Um, associated with the Communist Party. He, he's not a communist himself, but he's, he leaves Najaf, he goes to Baghdad, he becomes a labor organizer. He's very close to the workers throughout his life, uh, to peasants. Uh, he's a member of the Peace Partisans movement. He, he praises the Soviet Union over and over again in his poetry. He praises North Korea. Um, so, so he's very much invested in a sort of cosmopolitan global left-wing vision. Um, uh, associated with the Communist Party. On the other hand, he's a, he's a staunch Arab nationalist. He um, uh, ends up in the internment camps during World War One because he's he's um, seen as as being complicit in the Rashid Ali movement um, and had uh, recited some poetry on the, on the radio uh, in praise of. Um, of Rashid Ali and, and uh, against Britain, uh, although his his position is is complex, and that he he had been you know well before the war uh, was was extremely critical of, of fascist aggression in uh, Libya. Uh, he's been critical of Hitler um, uh, before the war begins, but like the Communist Party in general, he supports the Rashid Ali coup because it's the first step of the sort of bourgeois nationalist revolution that will precede. Um, uh, the eventual um, communist revolution and, and communist ideology. Mm-hmm. Um, so, he, so he has he has credibility when he goes into the internment camps. He really builds um, strong relationships with many of the nationalist uh, poets who were um, more problematic, who had a much more problematic uh, relationship to Nazism and more problematic views on. On world war ii in general but they mm. they reach a sort of accommodation many of those nationalists had been staunch anti-communists and when they meet bottle their positions are tempered a little bit because they see a communist who shares their patriotism and their devotion to the arab people and to the the, the cause for liberation um so yeah he's he's a guy that i really see for a long period of time straddling that line uh, he's involved in in every form of anti-colonial uh, activism uh, across the period, and and uh, it's only on sort of rare occasions in in 1937, and then again in 1959, um, when when he lines up strongly behind a particular um, uh, military regime that that alienates uh, the nationalists hmm. from supporting him. Huh.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And that's that's and that's kind of why I saw him as a little bit mm, in contrast to Jawahiri, just because Jawahiri is more is closer to the government, right? I mean, he's he's not in internment camps for example yeah right
0: yeah and and part of that is is um Jabari does go to jail though a, a few times um yeah, but, but even after he goes to jail he's he's sometimes back on the side of the government um he you know he's in, in jail in 1937 um but but then he's he's released from jail he's unlike Bahadur he never supports the Rashid Ali movement in fact um goes to mm-hmm. Iran uh so that he doesn't have to um uh so he isn't coerced into supporting it. They do actually. The government does try and throw him into the internment camp because his poetry was recited on the radio in support mm. of the movement by the by the um, government of uh, some of the the government officials of the arya Ali movement himself but jawahari is able to make his case to the new ministry of interior and says yes but it wasn't me that was reciting the poem and the poem that was used was actually not about world war 2 it was about world war 1 so it's my old anti british poem that's just being recycled uh, so i can't be held complicit for that uh, and it, which in a way points out to the the some of the the absurdity of the um, the government stance toward anti-colonialism, and that if you expressed opposition to Britain in World War II, then you're seen as a Nazi and complicit in Nazism. Whereas if you can prove that your anti-British sentiment is limited to World War One, because the official position of the government is that was good and fine, and a critical element to creating an independent Iraqi state, then you're fine uh, and, and off the hook. Um, so he ends up not not being interned then, um, and and re- actually does um, his, his lifetime ambition for a long time was to win a seat in parliament Uh, because in in many ways that like getting a seat in parliament uh, is a sign of national recognition of his skills as a poet, right? It says that your poetry is so good uh, that, um, you know, you're considered a sort of representative of the nation and you deserve to have a seat representing Mm -hmm. the people in parliament. He does finally get his seat in uh, late 1947. Uh, he's elected, uh, but then he ends up resigning uh, after just a few months um, in office because of this big uh, uprising, the Wathba in 1948. Um, one of the the most important um, events of this uprising is the, the bridge massacre um, in in January of 48, there's um, hundreds, thousands probably of um, Iraqi students and workers crossing a bridge over the Tigris River uh, to to link up with one another. The police opened fire on the students, killing hundreds of them. The, the death tolls are disputed, but I think most sources would put it at uh, over 200, over 300, perhaps. Uh, and one of those dead is Jawhari's brother, Jafar. Um, so two weeks later, for his memorial service, uh, Muhammad Mahdi al-Jawahiri stands in front of the mosque where the memorial was held and takes up a loudspeaker. There's this great picture floating around that's um, it's actually of terrible quality. So um, I had initially wanted it as the, the cover of my book, but it just didn't work because of the, the, the quality problems of the picture. But in the picture, you can see him. He's, he's standing on a stepladder in the middle of the crowd. The crowd is holding up the stepladder. He's got a megaphone to his mouth. There's uh, tens of thousands of people around him listening. As he recites this poem, and it's come up again and again, especially if you talk to older Iraqis, you see this in oral histories that come out. Uh, Everyone who was around that generation in in 1948 uh, can can recite that poem word for word, uh, at least the opening lines of it, because it was so powerful as a sort of indictment of the political scene and a, a call for a sort of revolutionary future. And so from that point on, I think Jawahari is much more committed to this um, sort of public dynamic of making the an anti-government case in public, of um, sort of uh, um, pushing buttons wherever possible. And so he does get himself into trouble off and on again um, for in, in the late 40s and 50s. Hmm.
1: And in 1958, that's, I mean, that's this decisive moment. That's the, that's the revolution. The monarchy is swept away, Colonel Kasim comes to power, and we see a lot of these tensions that we've just been talking about really come to a head. And as you said, the p- 1959, this period 1958-59 is particularly intense, and I thought the, some of these experiences and controversies in the time period were well represented by another poet whom you talk about, uh, Abdul Wahab al-Bayadi particularly. I thought he, the way you talked about him and his experiences of this revolutionary period was very interesting. So if you could talk about that a little bit, too, that'd be great.
0: Yeah, thanks. So, so when I think, uh, I think the story that I find most interesting about Bayeti. so, so Bayeti was, um, uh, he was, you know, he's another one of these poets who really, uh, much like Baudelaire Loom, he's, he's um, sort of, in a, in a lot of ways, straddles the line between communist and nationalist. He was, he was um, uh, always a sort of staunch proponent of Nasser, Uh, and Nasserism, that sort of pan-Arab nationalism, but he's also a member of the Communist Party. Um, At the time of the revolution in in July of 1958, Bayeti was living in the Soviet Union, uh, and like a lot of Iraqi poets, intellectuals, uh, activists of various stripes who are out of the country in exile to the political environment, everyone rushes back to Baghdad, uh, to Iraq, to participate in this new revolutionary climate. And when the revolution happens, the pan-Arabists and the, the communists are equally excited right? They all saw the old regime as their enemy. They're all glad to see the monarchy down, and they're ready to finally realize a revolutionary vision. Uh, there's both Baathists, the, the pan Arab Baath Party, and uh, communists who are members of uh, Qasem's cabinet, right? So both both the nationalist and the Iraqi nationalists, the communist factions, everyone is represented in the new government. Everyone is committed to, to a new revolutionary vision, and it's fine for a few months. But then tensions really start to intensify in late 58, early 1959. Uh, And and in my view, there's a particularly important episode in in early 1959. Uh, Bayeti published a poem about the Dr. Zhivago affair in the Soviet Union, um, about Boris Pasternak. Um, And the poem itself, it's... um, it's really about Boris Pasternak. It's not a metaphor for Iraqi politics. It's about this, mm. this um, communist discussion of Pasternak, who's seen to have betrayed the Soviet Union by writing and publishing a novel that's critical of communism. Uh, and so Bayeti takes the Soviet side. He's really critical of Pasternak. Uh, and he includes a line there that um, the, the line is, we will, um, we will make from your skulls ashtrays for our cigarettes. Uh, and when I first read this, so, so actually when when I read this, when I read the line at first, it was uh, Bayeti who was unnamed, was being attacked by a couple of literary critics who wrote a book denouncing the crimes of communists against Arab literature. And so they have this unnamed poet. And I thought, all right, so this this verse sounds familiar. That looks to me like Bayeti style. So I looked it up. Uh, I couldn't find it in the collection that I thought it was. But then I found the original version of that collection. And sure enough, the poem was there in the original collection. It was removed from later versions. Um, so this is poem about Doctor Zhivago. Sure enough, the line is there. Uh, and when I read that line, when I, you know, when I read this line, that 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 line that we will make from your skull's ashtrays for our cigarettes, uh, that it's it's such an evocative image um, that I had just happened to be reading. Um, uh, around that time, a, a book about um, communist poetry in the Soviet Union, and I knew that, that that image of the skulls as ashtrays for cigarettes came from a famous poem from uh, Mayakovsky, uh, the great Soviet communist mm-hmm. poet. Um, so you know, so that's the, that's the sort of pretext, is that Bayeti is invoking this great Soviet poet uh, to lend support to the Soviet Union in its uh, struggle against Pasternak and Dr. Shivago. But then that that line gets sort of trumpeted by Bayeti's opponents and the opponents of the communists in general, the Pan-Arab nationalists who say, see, what he's really talking about is the Kaomi faction, the Pan-Arab nationalists. This is what they want to do to us. They want to make our skulls into ashtrays for their cigarettes. Um, And it becomes this this big struggle, like I said, in, in later versions, later publications of that. Um, of that diwan, the, the poem is removed, um, which which to me speaks of to a, a broader. What I find a really interesting phenomenon: there's all of this communist poetry published in 1959 and 1960, which is deeply engaged in this communist nationalist political struggle. Uh, a lot of it is is very evocative. Some of it is um, uh, violent, um, you know. But but what happens is, at least for the prominent poets who are publishing this communist anti. Uh, nationalist poetry um, in the aftermath, after the collapse of the Qasim regime and the, the rise of the Baathist state, uh, anyone who wants to remain uh, in Iraq or to remain relevant in Iraqi poetry considerations makes an effort to sort of clean their record. So there's this like compilations. There's another uh, uh, famous uh, Iraqi communist poet, uh, uh, Iraqi communist poet uh, Buland al-Haidari. Um, who, when he puts out his uh, sort of full compilation later on, his 1959 collection is simply missing uh, because it would be too controversial uh, in that period. Bahra'u when he publishes his Diwan, the 1959 stuff is gone uh, because it's too inflammatory um, in this sort of modern context. So there's this uh, sort of collective attempt to erase or forget uh, what was published in that period because it's it's too painful, it's too dangerous, it's too... um, politically sensitive after 1963.
1: Hmm. And I mean, you do, your book essentially comes to an end at around this time period of Qasim's assassination, the, coming in, the entrance into politics of the Ba'ath party. But you're also making another argument at this point about why poetry starts to fade away as having this political power that you've been talking about in most of the book. And I'm wondering if you could discuss that a little bit, this, the change from neoclassical poetry towards free verse poetry, which you see has having real political impact.
0: Yeah, thanks. That's a great question. That, and, you know, I have to, I, I always want to be careful in the way that I phrase this contrast between free verse and neoclassical poetry, because it, the way I describe the transition from neoclassical to free verse poetry in my book is, um, it would be very easy, and maybe I do sort of make this uh, uh, make this implicit in my writing. But in a lot of ways, it's it's a movement that diminishes the political power of poetry. So it would be easy to read this as a negative development, and I don't actually mean that from an aesthetic standpoint. I actually really love the free verse poetry and find it, um, you know, more pleasing to read in a lot of ways than the neoclassical stuff. Um, which can be very sort of um, some, sometimes pedantic and you know it follows the set pattern. and you know, I enjoy the style of free verse poetry more, but that's partly because of like the, the nature of, of how poetry was meant to be consumed. Uh, in my view, that the reason that neoclassical poetry was so powerful is because it has this set rhymed pattern uh, that lends itself extremely well, to public performance. I mean, a lot of these poems you can imagine being chanted in demonstrations, especially the the neoclassical verses mm-hmm. of someone like Bahá'u'lláh, whose whose language was very simple and direct. And uh, there's a lot of stories, especially from 1948, of him being carried on the crowds on the on the shoulders of uh, workers in these big crowds who are. Uh, walking through the streets of Baghdad and everyone is chanting his poems as he extemporizes uh, on the spot with these um, uh, revolutionary verses. And it's, it's the sort of thing that you just can't do the same way in free verse. Free verse, I mean, it can be, it, it often did still, I mean, it's still, um, after the transition to free verse poetry remains extremely popular and powerful in Iraq and, and poetry can have uh, free verse poetry can have just as powerful of a, a political uh, images and political messages, but it doesn't have the same sort of resonance in the popular protest. I mean, if you imagine reading free verse poetry, you know, I imagine a situation, maybe you're reading alone out of a book or or you're in a cafe and things are a little bit quieter. It's it's more difficult to imagine people chanting it. Um, and, and it sort of, Raising the passions of crowds in the same way, it becomes more. Mm. Um, you know, I, I, my my view, my end sort of vision here is that the transition to free verse makes poetry much more a, a, a feature of uh, art, literature, intellectual history. Whereas my argument is that neoclassical poetry was—I mean, sure, these these guys are intellectuals; they are uh, literateurs; they're artists in certain ways. Uh, but in terms of their social function, they're occupying a more important role here because of how their message resonates publicly. Um, you can't just say, "Well, this is just literary history," or "This is just intellectual history." Uh, in the in the same way, you might characterize um, sort of poetry in the United States or or in Europe uh, in that period.
1: Yeah, no, I mean, as I was reading your book, one thing that occurred to me was, uh, if, if, if one's reading a history of like South, the South African anti-apartheid movement, it, there's a big emphasis on the role of music, right? Different m- movements right. have these different uh, types of culture that help motivate them. And for reading this book, I really did get a sense that, from it that poetry must be understood as central to a lot of these struggles that are happening in the early half of the 20th century. So I, I love that about the book. Um, and actually, I, I wanted to end by asking you, are there any poems or, or poets that you thought were particularly evocative of some of the themes of your book?
0: Um, yeah, thanks. So I'll, uh, I guess I, I'd, um, there's two that come to mind. The, the first, um, uh, I'll give you one from Jawahari and one from uh, Laloom. Uh, so the poetry from the poem from Jawahari that I want to mention comes actually from the introduction to my book. Uh, it's, it's one of the stories that, that, that sort of caught me the most and really drew me to this project, these stories of these uh, ceremonial political occasions uh, where the poet is invited to give this speech with the hope that he'll be praising the government. And then he flips the tables, uh, flips the script and turns around and uses the opportunity to denounce the political class. Um, so this poem comes from Jawahari. This is in... Um, July 1949. Uh, he's at a major event. Um, it's it's a poem recited in honor of Hashem al-Witri, who is a, um, uh, the head of the medical college in Baghdad. Um, and so Jawahari had been more or less in um, sort of out of public view for a year or so after the death of his brother. And now he steps on stage, he grabs the microphone and he says, I was informed that you have been inquiring, asking about my presence here and there, wondering how such a dazzling star could stay away from the gilded gatherings of notables. But realization has come and overwhelmed you, like morning removes the dusk from your eyes, for I only ceased my sermons when I could not find one who deserved to hear the echo of mine complaint. So everyone knows this guy's been silent for a long time, and he's about to unleash a tirade. Um, And so he goes on to denounce uh, the British, who he calls the Rotten Thamesians, James River. And he says that they're they're local collaborators who liberally bestow our wealth on white men while we brown men remain confined to our stables. Uh, But then the poem ends with this uh, amazing verse where he says, they boast that a towering tyrannical wave has blocked the path to every outlet and escape, Uh, meaning the government boasts that no one can criticize them anymore because they've shut off all passive dissent, but they lie for my verses fill the mouth of time endlessly traversing from the east to the west, tearing them from their youth and dropping them to their fate, destroying their grand palace of lies, for I am their death, bringing their houses upon them, inciting even doormen and babies to curse their name. Um, and then what follows after that is he he rips up the poem that he's reading into shreds uh, and walks out, lets it flutter to the ground, uh, which I always think of like the mic drop moment. Uh, but unfortunately for him, the the so the government wanted to arrest him and they couldn't at first because they, they didn't have the text of the poem. He's they, they come to ask him, can you tell us the poem? And he says, well, uh, I recited it. I tore up the, the copy and actually I don't remember what I said. Uh, but it turns out some of his young admirers who were there had gathered the scraps of paper, pieced them together, get it published in a, in a newspaper in Lebanon. And as soon as that happens, they can they can use it to charge him. Uh, and so he, he uh, spends a short period of time in prison. Um, hmm. The second poem that I will give you just a little bit about comes from, uh, Muhammad Saleh bar a uh, it's a poem called, uh, where is my right? Uh, he wrote it in 1956. And one of the, um, I think really striking things about this poem is that, um, for most Iraqis, this is by far his best known poem. Uh, it's never been published anywhere, um, uh, other mm-hmm. than, you know, maybe in some, um, some books that other people have put together, but he never published it under his own name uh, for, for a period of time in Iraqi history. It was a cr- it was a crime There people were arrested for having handwritten copies of the poem. Uh, it's a bitter denunciation of um, uh, the, the state uh, society, uh, the sort of religious class, all sorts of people who are accused of oppressing the rights of the people. Uh, and the poem um, really came to the scene of, of social media recently in, in uh, 2019, uh, because a popular Iraqi singer performed it at a cultural festival in, Na- in Najaf. And it's a really striking scene because this young man is in Najaf, the, the um, you know, usually considered a, um, a sort of holy city because of its, its relationship to the Shia shrines. And he's singing this poem by a communist poet that is bitterly denouncing uh, the clerics and other groups. So here's the passage that I'm going to recite from the conclusion of my book. Uh, You wolves have trampled the people for thousands of years, so leave me to my religion, for what business is it of yours? Have you received a writ from God to intervene in my affairs? When God's book cries from the mosque, where is my right? These hypocrites shamelessly deceive God in full public view, for what is duping God for those who fill the world with deception? If they could seize all power, they would leave none for God, and God would be next to me, crying out, where is my right? Taxes are extracted by force from the very poorest of people who have performed a thousand tasks and never won their right. The losses fall on them while their sheep are stolen by politicians, but the criminal is the poor man who cries, where is my right? A young girl found nothing but swirling dust to cover herself, so she serviced the whole neighborhood but did not own an inch. She longed for death so that she could at last own a tomb, but then the grave digger above her cried, where is my right? What is this and the like except an open field of prostitution, where this land is sold in the most despicable trading markets? If our religion says to hurl 80 stones at the prostitute, but the judge who decrees is the culprit, where is my right? Liberate this nation if you are truly preachers of sincerity, from the chains of ignorance for freedom will repel the greedy, throw your weight towards securing the rights of workers, bless the huts ever crying to the palaces, where is my right? A very powerful poem and as you say you can
1: find the man singing it on youtube also so i, I, right. I after reading your book i went and looked it up and <laughs> again very nice
0: yeah it's a, it's a great performance so.
1: yeah well so i mean this these type of poems the stories you tell about them make the book just absolutely fascinating to read so i hope people will go out and find the book read it um, experience it for themselves um, and may I just conclude by asking you uh, now that this is out there published w- what are you working on now or are you taking a break uh,
0: yeah so I'm right now I'm working on um, there's a couple of threads from the book that I really wanted to follow up on and 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 moving be- beyond uh, just a sort of poetry centered project and looking at some of the broader themes that were um, hinted at maybe in the book. One of those one of those themes that, that really spoke to me um, was the way that um, anti-communist rhetoric in the late 1950s um, began to to acquire the real feel feel of a moral narrative, uh, and the way it also mm-hmm. mapped onto some of the um, sectarian language in the country. Uh, and so I'm working on a, on a project that that really sort of uh, maps the evolution of sectarianism in Iraq, and and in many ways, is is going to make the argument that uh, in many uh, that, that what we see is the a lot of the the anti Shiite current that that develops in the Baath Party in the the 1970s 1980s and onwards. In some ways, is just an evolution of the older um, sort of discourse of anti-communist rhetoric, uh, and that mm. itself has a longer future. But, so anyway, I, I want to look at the, the evolution of, um, of, of sectarian language and sectarian practices uh, in the modern state, looking at um, the, the influence of the colonial state and colonial policies on uh, sectarian dynamics in the country, um, and, and really to foreground, because I think in a lot of ways, um, when, when people are talking about sectarianism in Iraq, there's this heavy focus put on the 1970s and the 1980s. And so th- this project would, would look more at the prehistory uh, of those tensions um, and, and how we can see the roots of that conflict developing, even at a time in the 1950s and the 1960s, when um, for the most part on the surface, it appeared that um, sectarianism was, was, not, was not very significant or, or was no longer relevant. Um, so I want to show how, how those dynamics begin uh, to develop.
1: Well, that should be an interesting book. I mean, and hopefully it's as interesting to read as this one was. Well, thank you very much, uh, Professor Jones. This was really nice to talk with you about your book. Appreciate your time.
0: Yes, thank you so much, Ruben.